Hope Church. And we're going to continue this morning um, through the book of Acts. Last week we finished Acts chapter 21. And uh, this week we'll pick up kind of the end of 21 and then uh, through 22 and just a little bit of 23. So I'm going to try to move pretty quickly here, um, you know, through this. But uh, it is, there's some great stuff in here that we can take uh, for our lives this morning. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll jump right in. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, God. We thank you for your great love for us. We, we are thankful that we could come together uh, to worship you and uh, to lift up your voice, um, our voices to you, God, um, that we can praise your holy name, that we can remember that you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. Thankful that he paid for our sins there and that also the grave could not hold him. We're thankful that we serve a risen Savior and King. Help us to be mindful of that um, as we live our lives and as you call us um, to follow you with our, our whole selves, everything that we are, God. And we need your strength in order to do that. Um, we thank you for the word and the powerful testimony we see this morning in it. And we pray that we would be encouraged by it. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So in Acts chapter 21, um, Paul had you know, traveled to Jerusalem. He knew that there would be trouble there, but he went um, anyway because he was convinced that that's what God you know, wanted him to do. Um, he, was, he went to the temple um, as part of a vow that he had taken, and he was there to make his offerings. And um, in this time, there's some, a, a somewhat of a false accusation that brought against him. But in any case, Paul is is seized and he's dragged out of the temple and the people are ready to kill him basically. Um, but then the Roman garrison is right there and they come in and save, you know, Paul's life. Uh, and just a little note there, it's kind of interesting that, you know, these people were willing to kill Paul, but they didn't want to do that, you know, inside the temple. So they had to take him outside the temple and shut the doors because if you're gonna, you know, kill someone without a trial, which would really be murder... Um, in this case, not a justified um, execution in this system of any type, that um, you know they didn't want to defile the temple in that process of committing their their acts, you know, and so it's kind of an interesting uh, thing there, and, and that's something I think we need to think about as well. That um, you know, if there's anything that we're kind of like, well. Um, I mean, context can, can be important, but if in our minds we think that something is evil in one place, but okay at another place, we've got to be very careful. There will be rare instances where that's true, um, but for the most part, if something is wrong some, one, in one area, it's wrong in another area as well. And so, um, you know, this is part of that human justification that we all have a tendency towards uh, taking place, you know, in our hearts and minds. We have to guard against that. Uh, but... As Paul is taken, you know, he's taken up these stairs um, and he's going to be put into this kind of holding place. And he talks to the Greek, um, to the Roman commander in Greek. And then he, you know, he's a citizen. He claims his citizenship as a Roman, uses that to his advantage and gets permission to address the audience. And so he addresses them in Hebrew. 
And so that's where we pick up. We'll read the last verse of 21. It says, When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Now, I want to stop there for a moment because Paul is about to share his testimony. That's really what is going to be the avenue of how he shares the good news of Jesus Christ with this crowd that had been violent, you know, ready to kill him. This is how he's going to go about that. He's going to share his, his story of what happened in his life and how God had changed them, changed him. And so for our learning this morning, I just want you to, to consider and to remember that every testimony has three basic parts when it comes to a testimony concerning Jesus. And so that is your life before you met Christ. What was your life like? Before you met Jesus. The second part is, how did you meet Jesus? What were the circumstances surrounding that? And the third is, how is your life now different? How has it changed since you've come to meet Jesus? Um, now, for some like Paul, that's, as we'll see here and as we've already seen prior in the book, you know, his testimony is of the most dramatic variety that could possibly be imagined. Not everybody has that same sort of testimony. You know, you may have grown up in a home where your parents love God and taught the, you know, the Bible and you came to know God at a, at a young age and didn't go through, you know, a ton of, you know, outward rebellion and, you know, those sorts of things. You may have never heard about Jesus until you were 20. You know, there's, all, and there's everything in between. You know, there's all sorts of different, you know, stories uh, that are there. But in any case, um, we have those three parts, life before Christ, how you met Christ, and how your life has been changed since then. And so as we finish verse 2, it says, and he said, verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from then I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them to bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Okay, um, so he starts, you know, from the beginning. He starts with saying, you know, I am a Jew. I am a Jewish person. He is you know, making this common identity with his audience. And in this case, he can make a very common identity with his audience. We see he does that in several different ways. But he wants them to know, hey, I, have, I am a, a son of, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, just like you are. You're, you know, and, but and I was also brought up in this city. And why is that important? You know, this is Jerusalem. This is Zion, the center of Judaism, the city of David, the glory of Israel, the promised inheritance of the people. And all good Jewish people in Paul's day were zealous for it and its future. You know, and their future that was envisioned for it was a liberated future with the Messiah reigning from the throne of Zion. That was the future that they saw. You know, the eternal throne of King David. Right? And so they, they first saw this liberation 
you know, from the, from the Roman Empire. You know, it was part of, in their context at this time, you know, their vision and what they wanted to see happen. But then he also says, you know, things like he was born in Tarsus. Um, and that Tarsus is a city, you know, that's inland up the Mediterranean. Uh, it was interesting that he was born there. It was the only feasible trading route between Asia Minor and Syria. Um, it had a strategic location that brought wealth to its citizens. Um, the city had about 500,000 people in Paul's day. And that's a large city. You know, that's, that's a multiple of like four to the city of, you know, Athens. Um, that we li- or Athens, Georgia, that we live in. And educationally, it was said to rival um, Athens, Greece, and Alexandria, Egypt. And so, you know, you can see that being there, he would have had, again, you know, this, this upbringing where he would have seen lots of things from lots of different cultures. But then he was, you know, his family had the means, think about this now, his family had the means to send him to Jerusalem for him to be educated at the feet of the leading Pharisee of his day in Gamaliel. So this is, you know, that, that is significant. That is significant. It's, it's like, you know, it's like having the resources. And this is, you know, not something, I don't think they got scholarships, you know, here in this time. But this is having the resources for his family to pay cash, you know, for their son to go to Harvard, and, and have an Ivy League, you know, education. That's kind of the equivalent that we're talking about. But not just going to Harvard, but also, you know, being sure to get the best professor for every subject. You know, that's what this is when, you know, he is going to study under the best of the best. The most esteemed of his day. And so, it's interesting, though, that Gamaliel was, um, he was highly respected. He was known as our rabbi, and was the first to have that designation as opposed to, you know, my, my rabbi, like my local rabbi sort of thing. This is like our rabbi, like bigger picture. That's how respected and well-known that he, that he was. And he was the first person that we see to really carry that sort of ta- title as our rabbi. He counseled multiple Roman leaders on matters of Jewish law and customs because when the you know the the ones that ran the sh- the Romans that ran the show when they wanted to know hey how do we deal with the Jewish people and their ways and how do we you know how do we make it so we don't have riots how do we make it so that things are easier to govern uh, what do we do in these different situations they would call upon him for his counsel so again he's the he's the leading Pharisee here um, in terms of of people going to him. Uh, as far as a teacher and, and being respected. We also see that he's more moderate. Uh, back in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were on trial before the Jewish council. The leaders wanted to kill the apostles for preaching about Jesus. In verse 34 it says, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thodius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. 
So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, what's interesting here, we see that Paul is not moderate like his teacher, Gamaliel. We see that Paul was extremely zealous, and he shares that um, in his testimony, that he went around trying to destroy the people of the way. And when he says the people of the way, you know, that's how the early followers of Jesus identified themselves. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's how they identified themselves. They didn't go around saying we're Christians. You know, they were called that later on. I mean, we see it in the book of Acts at Antioch where they're first called that, meaning little Christ. And that was their testimony that they, you know, they were seen to live according to the ways of Jesus. Um, but it was an outside designation. That word Christian is an, is an outside designation. It's not an inside designation of what the people called themselves. They called themselves believers, saints, um, people of the way, um, those sorts of, of terms. And so um, we see that Paul was going to destroy them. He was seeking to destroy them. He did not have the same perspective as his teacher on that subject. He was much more zealous. And so in verse 6 it reads, And I was on my way and drew near um, to Damascus. And about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so we see um, part two of Paul's testimony here. The how he met Jesus, again, is the most dramatic that you know you're probably ever going to find. It's I mean it's it's up there in terms of its drama factor, um, but it was it was an abundance of grace. We see it an abundance of grace to a person, you know, who deserved it the least. Probably of of all people on the earth, you know, Paul des- deserved that grace the least. Why? Because he was actively trying to kill followers of Jesus. He was by every definition that you can come up with. He was a terrorist. You know, he was, he was a terror. Paul was a, a terrorist before he was an apostle. He was a terrorist. 
in, in giving that assertion or the assertion of, of who he was before meeting Christ in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So he says who he was and that he was the chief of sinners. He was the most you know, undeserving. And yet... Jesus Christ saved him. And this is wonderful news for us today. Um, and in any context, you know, that from, from when this happened until today. Because, you know, you find people in this world who will say, you know, I'm, I've done too many bad things. I'm too bad of a person to know God. They will have, you know, in some ways written themselves off. Or we could be tempted to say, you know, well, that person is so far gone in their thoughts and in their ways of doing things that, you know, I don't even think they could be saved. We could be tempted to have that sort of thought. But then we should be reminded by the testimony of the Apostle Paul. If the Apostle Paul can be saved, then who, then who can't? And so that, that, what that means is in, in that hope is that, yes, somebody today could be, you know, part of, of ISIS and, and you know, trying to destroy followers of Jesus and to chop off people's heads, literally, and tomorrow could be a follower of Jesus. That that is possible in the power of our God. That is possible, you know, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That that is, that that is possible, and we, and we should pray for such. Because even Jesus told us to pray for you know, our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. And, you know, and, and what I believe we would, find, we would find among true believers in the Middle East is that they pray for their persecutors more than those of us, you know, who aren't persecuted. Obviously, that's their context and that's their situation. I'm sure that, you know, drives their prayers. But we should join them. We should join our family because they are our family. We don't know them personally. We don't know them by name. They're not in the same room with us when we worship God, but we are brothers and sisters. And so we should care deeply about their lives. Um, and we should be praying for their, for their enemies. And, you know, that's really the, one of the things that's so powerful about the gospel of our, of our Savior is that all of human nature tells you to desire for your enemies to be destroyed. And yet Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies and to love our enemies. I mean, it's so counter to everything that is in my flesh and everything that is in your flesh. Because we want revenge. We want to get even. We want, you know, even in, our, in a certain sense, you know, we want justice. 
But we need to understand that in God's economy, there is justice, and there is always justice. Sometimes we have to leave that to God's hands. But here's the reality of it. There is, there is justice in your life and in my life, but it's not based on our righteousness. It's based on Jesus' righteousness. Because if the justice was only bound up in our goodness, every one of us would be destined for hell. Every last one of us. So God's justice does play out. Sometimes it's a long play. Sometimes it's a slow play. But it does play out. Because there will be, there, there will be the price paid. It's either paid by what Jesus did on the cross, or it's paid in judgment. But it's paid either way. And that's what so many times people don't understand. They, you know, people want to have this idea, it's kind of popular these days, well, you know, God is love, and so, you know, really, I mean, Jesus on the cross, I mean, that's just some sort of picture for us, maybe, if that has anything to do with the story, whatever, but... You know, he's just love, so he can just take away your sin without anything. But they're missing out on the fact that God is just and that God is holy. And that his love cannot be described in such a way that violates his holiness and his justice. The same is also true, that his, his holiness and his justice cannot be described in such a way that eliminate his love. The fact that he is love. And so we have to be careful on either side of that. But I would hope that we would be hopeful people in the world that we would see that if God can save the, save the terrorist Paul, that he can save anybody. That until a person breathes their final breath, they're not too far gone, that there's still hope. There's still hope. So, you know, we want to have that clear. You know, Paul's testimony is clear on, on who he is. And, and you know, no, no matter, um, it, you know, if your, t- your testimony doesn't have to be dramatic for it to be truthful about sin and about where you would be without God. You know, and I, and I, what, I, what we really have to avoid is giving this perception of like, well, I was a good person. And then, my, but my life got even better when I started following Jesus or I became a believer in Jesus. Because we have to understand how offensive our sin is before a holy God. And we don't want to, you know, undermine that. You're like, okay, I, I, I get it. You know, most of us have not committed murder, you know, or, or other, you know, like heinous, you know, sorts of, of, of sins that we would think about. But do you understand how evil it is before God to look at another human being whom he created and to look, you know, spitefully at that human being? Do you understand how offensive it is to a holy God to be prideful about your, in your own estimation of yourself compared to that of another human being? That, that, that's ugly before a holy, perfect God. Well, tell me that 
you know, I, I don't know anybody who hasn't been guilty at some point in their life of, of committing that offense. We're all prideful. You know, and so that's what we have to understand. No, I mean, and you may have been young and you may have not done, you know, like this huge list of things or whatever are the most egregious things in our view. But it's still truthful. My sins were, were ugly and heinous before a holy God. And the only way they could be dealt with was through Jesus' death on the cross. They couldn't be dealt with me trying to be a better person, me trying to be nicer, me trying to be better. They could only be dealt with by the acknowledgement that I'm not good enough, but that Jesus is my perfect substitute, that he died on the cross in my place, and he took what I deserve. But it's kind of hard to share testimony It's kind of hard to share your testimony if you don't think you actually deserve God's judgment. But if you kind of have this idea in your head, well, I would have been okay no matter what. Well, that's not the gospel. The gospel is fundamentally, I'm not okay without Jesus. I'm not okay without Jesus. And so we, you know, make sure we don't miss out on that and and misrepresent that as we share our testimony with others. Um, just a, a small note here um, on the baptism question. Um, really, what we, you know, you, again, we, we talk about you know, how, how do you come to a theological position and you don't take it from one verse. You, know, you take it through like the whole of, of, of Scripture. Um, and people who are, are much better at the languages than I am talk about how the participle there in verse 16, that that can be translated you know, having called on his name. Um, because, as, you know, if you just read it, you know, in English as it is in a lot of the translations, you could end up with this idea that the, you know, actual water had some sort of saving capacity. Um, but we know from the Holy Scripture that, it's, that the key thing is to be baptized in Jesus Christ. That that's a spiritual baptism and that the water represents what is happening you know, on a spiritual level. Um, and so we need to keep that, you know, in, in mind that there's, you know, there, there isn't anything, you know, magical about H2O, but there is um, something powerful in the act of obedience. And so, you know, Paul was straight away, you know, baptized. But really, you see his conversion, um, you know, and it's interesting how... Um, you know, especially depending on how you grew up, you may have heard like a particular prayer that's almost like a formula for, you know, say this prayer and you'll be good, you know, sort of thing. Now, we need to understand there, saying the words and phrases doesn't save you either. I mean, there has to be the intention of, of the inward you, yeah, the deepest core of who you are. You know, that's, it's by grace, God's grace that we're saved through faith. There has to be a real faith. There's, if there's not real faith behind it, and the words are just these like sounds going out into the atmosphere that don't accomplish anything, you know, it's just sound waves. You don't get saved by sound waves, just like you don't get saved by H two O. You know, there's nothing, there's no magical sound waves to give out that are going to save you. If there's not, you know, there there has to be the faith, the intention of the inward self. 
that believes in Jesus. And so really, in verse 10, I, I believe it's all done for Paul in verse 10 when he says, What shall I do, Lord? You see, now, we, would, we might look at it in our context say, well, you know, he doesn't say here, you know, explicitly, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead and that, you know, all the things that we want to hear, right? But when he says, what shall I do, Lord? That is a statement of faith and of submission. It's acknowledging who the king really is. It's Jesus. Like there's no more fight left in Paul at this point. Surrender has happened. When he says, what shall I do, Lord? The battle is over. Does that make sense? You know, because he, he, he's not, he, he doesn't argue back there. You know, he's done with his fighting. He's done with his going against the way. And his life proves that that's true. Now, because we would say if he went on and changed his, you know, like, quote, unquote, changed his mind, or he went on and, and, you know, kept back to persecuting the people of the way, you couldn't take that as a sincere thing. But because, you know, we have the testimony of his life, we see that in verse 10 when he said, what shall I do, Lord? He meant it because he's obedient to the things that God then asked him to do. And so that's really the point of change for Paul also known as Saul. I had that question come back up um, to me this week. Why Saul? Why Paul? Saul is just, you know, I, I use this example. You know, if you're John here in the United States, you might be Juan when you are, you know, in a Latin American country, they might call you Juan. It doesn't have anything to do with his conversion. It's not a, people think of it a lot of times as like, a, like Abram having his name changed to to Abraham, or you know, there's a couple of times where God changes somebody's name to give it a give his name a meaning, a special thing. Um, a couple of times that happens in the Old Testament. This isn't like this. This is just you know a matter of context. That you know when he's in a Hebrew speaking t- context, he's more likely to go by Saul, and when he's in a Greek speaking t- context, he's going to go by Paul. And you know, I, I, I kind of wondered. I don't, I don't have any you know evidence to this, but I kind of wondered like on his official papers. If it would have had both his, you know, like, you know, papers for his Roman citizenship and things like that, if it would have had it listed as, you know, in both ways, since he was a Jewish, you know, person who was also a Roman citizen, um, you know, and like an, an alias almost, you know, if you have uh, that sort of thing we see on on passports and stuff today. So that um, that's just a, a, a little note there, uh, but it's one of those questions that. Um, is important, important, and we see he's even called Saul again by Ananias. Well, why does Ananias call him Saul and not Paul? Well, Ananias is a Jewish person. We see him use Paul a lot more in the scriptures, and he refers to himself Paul a lot more when he's in um, a multicultural context because he knows God's called him to reach the Gentiles, and so that's why he goes by Paul in all his letters. You don't find him actually. I couldn't find any place where he uses that he calls himself Saul. In every place he calls himself Paul when he's writing these letters back to, you know, the various churches. So just a little note there. But moving on, um, verse 17. So now you're going to have the post part. And he said, when I had returned 
to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approved and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So he's continuing the story of what, you know, what happened um, in his life. Okay, he's going to he's continuing on, you know, with it. And so he had already given, uh, you know, his testimony to that point, um, you know, having trusted the Lord on the way to Damascus, having returned to Jerusalem, and then he's warned there that he's going to be killed and to, you know, to get out. And then he goes back again and talks about his life before Christ. He, he brings back again because he, he wants to make this acknowledgement. He wants to make this acknowledgement about Stephen and his role in Stephen's death. He is owning what he was a part of in the past, which is important. He's not hiding from the, from the fact you know, of that reality. But in that, he's also telling them that they are in danger of being judged for what they've done. You know, he's, he's basically saying, I was right there with you until I met Jesus you know, on the road. And I was part of this too. But what you did to Stephen was wrong. You murdered him. And then, and it's interesting, then he says he's going to go away you know, to the Gentiles. Now, it's really interesting... Why were they so upset? Because we're going to see that they're going to get um, really upset about him saying he's going to go away to the Gentiles. In verse 22, it says, Up to this word they listened. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. But Jesus, back in Matthew 23, 15, said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte or a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, that's a few stronger words have ever been spoken. I mean, that is a powerful like condemnation there that Jesus gives about their, the missionary efforts of the Pharisees. And so we see that the Pharisees often went to Gentile places to try to make converts to, you know, to, for them to, to worship you know, Yahweh. And so why were they so you know, uh, provoked you know, in this? Um, you know, I, I think there's a combination of things here. You've got who's giving the message. Who, you know, somebody, if Gamaliel had said it, you know, it might have been received a little bit differently. Um, but he's also in it. He's condemning them about Stephen, you know, about their motives, and claiming that Jesus is the one uh, who told him to go away to the Gentiles. And I think that you know, part of that, if, if Jesus is claiming that, sorry, if Paul is claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the King over Israel, and you know, it's just a different, completely different picture than that what they envisioned the Messiah would do for them. You know, if Paul got up here and preached and said, and said, um, you know, this Jesus whom I serve is going to come back and sit on the throne of David, 
and we will lord and rule over all the surrounding Gentiles, and we're going to dominate the Roman Empire, the Romans, we're going to take their empire from them. They might be like, well, I'm not sure that's true, but they're not going to, only they're trying to kill him in this case. But it's that message that he gives about the claim that Jesus is the Messiah and that the Messiah is for the Gentiles as well. You know, they don't like that because their nationalism has overtaken them. And they can't, they can't read the Old Testament as it was actually written because they're, you know, with, with clarity because they can only see it through the lens of their nationalism. And it's crazy. You know, it's, it, it's, gotten, it's gotten crazy in their heads. And so all the things that talk, all the prophecies that talk about the Gentiles in the Old Testament, they can't absorb them properly. Because all that they can envision, you know, is passages with having to do with victory over their enemies. Which is somewhat understandable when, you know, they're in an oppressive, you know, environment that they're dominated by the Romans, that they have to do all the things that the Romans tell them to do. You can see, like, the, the pull towards that would be strong. Again, we have to be careful about how our context influences how we read the Bible, how we read the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. You know, but we have to be careful that we're not just seeing it through the lens of our culture, but that we're saying, okay, God, what were you really saying to these people? What's the true heart of the message? And, and with that, what are you saying to me? Well, there's kind of an order there that takes place. You know, if you're going to take the Scriptures correctly, there has to be an order of operations in terms of how we approach our Bibles. Otherwise, you just flip it open and you find Philippians 4.13 and it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens with me. You throw it on the back of a t-shirt and you say, go Falcons. I don't think that, that was God's intention. Well, I know it's not. You know, if you read the context of the, of the book of Philippians and you under, understand the context of the early church and the Roman Empire and all of these things, um, it's much bigger than that. And, and it, it can't be, re, it's, it does it a disservice to reduce it down to such a thing. So it, it, so it matters how we read our Bibles and how we look at it and that we strive to take it in its context and then to apply it to our culture. And it needs to dictate how we view our culture, not our culture dictating how we view it and how we view God. And how we view what we're supposed to do on this earth. Um, and it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do consistently because we have, again, the human nature. It's easy to read the Bible selfishly. That's what our flesh wants to do with it, as it wants to do with everything that it comes across, right? So, and that's not anything, you know, I, don't, I hope I'm not saying anything shocking there. You know, I think that's just should be pretty obvious about you know the wrestle that we still have between the spirit within us and the flesh that's within us. And if you're if you're if you don't have to wrestle with that and you're hundred percent spirit all the time, praise God. <laughs> praise God. But I think we probably all still have some work to do. So now let's move along um, and try to finish this up. As it said in as they said, you know, he shouldn't be allowed to live. Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks 
and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune, tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and answered him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, I, But I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Okay. So what's going on there? Just a couple of, of quick notes. You know, it's kind of interesting. Why do they want to kill you so much? Well, let's beat the truth out of you. You know, or try to beat the truth out of you and find out. You know, I'm not going to get into that whole um, discussion. Uh, but that's, a, that's one of those things. It's kind of interesting. You know, this was 2,000 years ago. And, you know, I'm sure people kind of debated how effective that was then. And, um, you know, we're still debating whether that's effective you know, today. Um, not going to get all into it, but it's kind of interesting. And, you know, he had already been beaten outside, you know, by the gate. I mean, they're, they're about to rip him in half when the Roman soldiers come and, and had saved him from the crowd. And so, you know, you might have figured he'd been beaten enough for, for one day. You know, it's, it's not that he was opposed, like, he was just completely unwilling to be beaten. He's been beaten before, you know, but... He's got an opportunity here in this context to say, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, and to use that to his strategic advantage. It's also interesting when the Tribune says, for a large sum, I bought my citizenship. Um, You know, the Roman Empire, as it expanded, uh, it, it, it had to give citizenship to some people uh, in, order to, in order to have enough people in its army. I mean, ultimately, uh, it, it had to bring people in um, to, the, to the Roman Empire, and it did through, so through citizenship. That's another interesting thing. You know, 2,000 years later, if you want to buy the citizenship of the, in the United States, you can. Um, if you want to buy citizenship, if you have enough money, I should say, if you have enough money, you can, you can make a certain investment here in our country and become a citizen because you're wealthy. You can do that in a lot of Caribbean countries. Now, if you're doing those sorts of things, especially in the Caribbean countries, one may ask, why? Um, there's usually nefarious financial things that are going on in those sort of situations. But you know, here we have it you know, in this day. But Paul says, I'm a citizen by birth. And that kind of trumps. It's in some way he's saying, you know, my citizenship is better than yours. And he's right. You know, that's just, I mean, in the view of how they all viewed it in this day. Um, I'm not saying that's right or wrong today. I'm just telling you that, that this is the perspective of, you know, even the Tribune knows Paul's higher than I am in terms of citizenship status than I am because I had to pay for mine and he was born a citizen. Um, so that's an interesting thing there. It was against the law, the Roman law, to bind or to beat you know, a Roman citizen without a trial or without just cause, you know, sort of um, 
you know, thing. I'm sure they would have been able to have a just cause if Paul had been in there, like, actively fighting and throwing punches. But when somebody's not being aggressive, they weren't allowed to take a Roman citizen and even just to bind his hands together. It's illegal. Um, and so, you know, they don't want to be in trouble um, in their own system. So he uses that to his advantage. Then verse 30, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down to set before them. Um, why don't we save that, the rest of that, for next week uh, in, in his defense there. But I do want us to be reminded today um, in any context that you're in, a lot of your, you know a lot of our contexts. I mean, even in this, you know, it's unlikely uh, that you're going to be, you know, in a crowd of people that are trying to pull you apart. That you're going to be able to make some sort of defense in front of them. You know, these sorts of things. But in your daily conversations, you're still going to have an opportunity to share your story with others, to share you know the good news of Jesus, and. That, that way that Paul does it here in the book of Acts is exactly you know, what we need uh, for our lives and in how we share our stories. You're still going to share with my life before Christ, how I met Christ, and my life, how my life is different now that I have met Christ. Okay, And so you're, you're going to have that. So here's a challenge, and the challenge is to pray and ask God for an opportunity to share your testimony with at least one person this next week. You know, this is how we practically apply the word. We see Paul share his testimony here. We see how he did it. And then you say, okay, now I don't have the same in, you situate life situation that he's having right here, but I still have people in my life every day who need to hear the good news about Jesus. So, you know, sometimes people are uncomfortable with that. That's okay to be uncomfortable. Um, you know, if you're uncomfortable, if that causes you like, ooh, stress, you know, you feel like, well, well let's take out some of that because there's, there's um, an element in our stress that we can take away through preparation. You know, if you ever have to give a presentation in front of a group of people, there's like a natural nervousness of, I'm giving a presentation in front of a group of people, but there's a whole lot more if it's, I'm giving a presentation in front of a group of people and I'm t- completely and utterly unprepared to do so. Because I haven't spent any time thinking about it. I haven't made good notes. I haven't done, you know, the work, right? And so then that brings in this whole other level of stress that's like freak out kind of stress. Well, we can eliminate, you know, that simply, you know, write out your testimony with those three parts. And then, you know, write it out, make it it's succinct. You know, it doesn't need to be, you know, an hour long, you know, sort of deal. It can be like three to five minutes total, max, like the whole thing. You know, for most contexts, it's going to be plenty. Um, you know, write it out, work on it, and then share it with somebody else in the church. And, you know, share it like you would if that person didn't know the Lord. And then ask that person for their feedback. Okay, what was clear, what was not clear, what, you know, and, and get some help with that. 
So now we've taken care of the preparation part. And if you're prepared to do something, then that reduces, you know, there's still going to be some nervousness. I mean, you, you take, you know, elite athletes, elite athletes that have done the same movements time and time and time again, you know, but going before that big game, especially before the game starts, there's a nervousness there. Some of them throw up, some of them don't, but there's a nervousness there and it usually lasts how long? When the whistle blows, when it, the thing starts, and about five seconds in, that's done. I want to tell you that sharing Jesus with people is just like that. If you're prepared, you know, you know and, and preparation you know, is also of your heart and of your mind, and you know, taking the time to pray. Right? There's that side of the preparation. So there's a side of the spiritual preparation, and then there's a practical preparation of what am I going to say here. And if you've done your work there, if you've done your homework and you've done your practice and you've put the time in and you've shared that with other people who are believers and you've gotten good feedback and you've adjusted and, so, and, and you've given it again and so you've, you know, you've, you know how to, what you're going to say and how you're going to be able to do it, you're still going to be nervous. Most of the time you're still going to be nervous. You know, I'm almost 42, and I've been following Jesus since I was four years old, and sometimes I still get a little bit nervous when I start that conversation. That, to me, is, it's a little bit more nervous that in that than in, than in preaching. You know, just a, a, a little bit. And then, but once that first sentence comes out, now we're good. Once you get through that first or second sentence, then you're good. You can do it. Every single follower of Jesus can do it. Every, every single one can do it and, and should. Um, so gain that confidence through great preparation. Take the time this week to be really prepared to do that. Ask somebody for help. you need help, I'm more than happy to sit down with you. And, and other people in the church are more than happy to sit down with you and to help you to do that. Now here's the next level tip. Next level tip. This is the last thing. You're like, well, how do I get that opportunity? Well, when you sit down with somebody, especially, you know, it's almost easier. It's easier if you, if you have these conversations earlier on in a relationship, you know, than, than later on. Because, you know, sometimes it's awkward. They're like, hey, you know, we've been friends for like five years, but there's something I haven't told you that I kind of need to tell you. Like, here's a pro-level tip on that. You just start with an apology. Hey, we've been friends for a long time, and there's some stuff that I should have made really clear that I haven't made clear yet. And I feel really bad about that. And so here's what I would like to share with you. Boom. There you go. But earlier on, it's better in the relationships. But how do you do it? Hey, so what's your story? Most people are not so rude once they've said their story as to not reply with. And so what's your story? And occasionally you'll find those people that are very self-focused, you know, where they're not interested, don't appear to be interested in your life at all, but they're more than happy to share their story. Like, you hear their story, and if they don't give you that opportunity, still take that opportunity. Well, that's a neat story. I'd like to share my story with you. Here's what happened, blah, 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 blah. It's really not complicated. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't overthink it. But, and even if it's really awkward, you know what's... It's a whole lot better... To be awkward in sharing our faith than to not be sharing our faith. 
It's a whole lot better to be awkward in sharing our faith than not sharing our faith. You know, and so you guys can do that. Every every single person can. It's harder for some than others. That's fully acknowledged. Fully acknowledged. But you can do it. And the more you do something, you know, the, the better you can you're gonna you know, you're gonna you're gonna be at it. You know, if we go shoot free throws every you know, once a year, and you know, you're probably not gonna be a great at shooting free throws. But if we take a, if we take an hour a week and we shoot three free throws, you're probably gonna get pretty decent at shooting free throws. No matter your skill level starting off. You're gonna get pretty good at that. Same as with with anything. So let's pray and be encouraged this week uh, to share your testimony, to share your story with others. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, your goodness to us, God. I pray that you would give us courage and boldness, that you would help us to be bold in our faith, that we believe in you, we trust you, we love you, God. We pray that that would be played out in front of others and that we would share what you've done in our lives and that we wouldn't um, get caught up in different lives where we're ashamed of you know things and then therefore others can't benefit from our stories. Um, Lord, we pray that um, we would allow your grace to speak um, through our lives, through our testimonies as it did so powerfully uh, through that of the Apostle Paul. We're thankful um, for how you changed his life Now you changed him from being a terrorist to an apostle. And God, if you can do that in his life, certainly you can work and do mighty miracles and show your mighty power displayed um, in our lives and in the lives of our friends and the lives of our our family members. And so, God, we ask you for it in the name of Jesus. And Jesus, we remember you as we come and we take that bread and that cup this morning. We remember that this is for you and it's all for you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.